Welcome to this message from the teaching ministry of University Presbyterian Church in Orlando, Florida, under the leadership of Senior Pastor Mike Osborne. Good morning. My name is Jill Beeler, and I have the privilege this morning of reading this morning's scripture portion. Um, it's found in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 to 20. 1 Corinthians 6, verses 9 through 20. Do you not know that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor male prostitutes, nor homosexual offenders, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And that is what some of you were. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Everything is permissible for me, but not everything is beneficial. Everything is permissible for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. Food for the stomach and the stomach for food, but God will destroy them both. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead, and he will raise us also. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said the two will become one flesh. But he who unites himself with the Lord is one with him in spirit. Flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a man commits are outside his body, but he who sins sexually sins against his own body. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. The word of the Lord. We're starting a new series this morning. Uh, The series is called Honest Answers for Honest Questions. And some of you have been kind enough to send me some questions that we pastors can try to address this summer. Actually, we have more questions than we have time to handle them. But we are going to try to work our way through Some questions that I think people today, you, many people in our culture are asking about Christianity, about the church, about Christian practice and Christian doctrines and things of that nature. So I'm pretty excited about it. I think it'll make a good set of uh, sermons and studies and thoughts for us during the summer. And so we come today to the very, very first one in this new series, Honest Answers for Honest Questions. The question that I got some weeks ago was... um, what should we think these days about modesty? And that's a really, really good question. And the questioner was talking about modesty in dress. 
So that's the subject we're going to try to take on today using the passage that you just heard Jill read to you. It's a really good question. Why? Because we live in Florida. It's hot in Florida. Uh, We don't wear a lot of clothing in Florida. We are a beach culture surrounded by water. And so that brings up issues. We're also in East Orlando near the largest university in America. Our church is filled with young families and students and children, filled with parents who are trying to rear their children, their sons and daughters, in a God-glorifying way. I read a blog post the other day from a distraught father, not from here but in a magazine, who said this. He said, I'm the father of a five-year-old daughter, and we can barely find clothing that does not communicate that she is a little hottie. Even the cartoon characters... Barbie, Dora, Strawberry Shortcake are becoming sexualized. So how do I teach a balanced view of modesty to my children in such an immodest culture? Pretty relevant, huh? I suspect many of you dads have found yourself wondering that kind of thing. Or I feel for some of you moms as well. I'm sure you've had some of those mother-daughter shopping trips where you felt trapped between what you felt was appropriate to wear, what the culture says is beautiful, and what your daughter's friends say is cool. If you haven't been there yet and you have young girls, you will one day be there. So it's a relevant question. How can we here at UPC, how can we as God's people develop a balanced view of modesty that avoids the extremes of both legalism on the one hand and license on the other? I think what we need to do is pray. And ask God to lead us as we talk together and think together through 1 Corinthians 6. Let's pray. Father, as we come to this subject, we understand that we are living in the world. We also understand how easily we can gravitate toward law instead of Christian freedom. And then we can understand how Christian freedom can become license and we can become careless about how we affect other people. So, Father, it's, it's a subject fraught with, it's like walking in a minefield. And so we pray that you will lead us and let your Holy Spirit teach us. But above all, we pray that what we will see today, most of all, is Jesus Christ in his beauty and in his glory. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So let's start with a definition. What is modesty? Well, in general terms... Modesty is to be free from vanity and egotism and pride. As the children were saying, modesty, another word for modest, is humble. But when it comes to dress, since we're talking about clothing, modesty means not dressing for show. I think it would be a good way to say it. Modesty means not dressing for show. Modesty means not using clothing to draw attention to your body for the purpose of arousing or manipulating other people or exalting yourself before others. So that's the definition we'll work with this morning. Modesty, it means to be simple, to be unpretentious, not ostentatious or extravagant in the way that we dress. Not sensual for the purpose of being sensual. And you know, the Bible addresses this very thing in several places. One place, for example, is in 1 Timothy chapter 2. It says, I want women to dress modestly, with decency and propriety, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or expensive clothes, but with good deeds appropriate for women who profess 
to worship God. See, in the Roman society in which Paul lived, who was the author of those words, it was popular for women to, especially women of means, well-to-do women, it was popular for them to wear elaborate hairdos. Hair would be stacked on top of hair on top of hair and wear an excessive amount of jewelry. So it wasn't skin so much that was on Paul's mind here, but rather the ostentatious, the over showing of one's possessions by wearing so many clothes. So skimpy clothing is not the only problem. You can be immodest in a lot of different ways, not just by showing too much skin. So with that as our bearings, with somewhat of an introduction, let me offer with you this morning five principles from the, from the Bible that will guide us to develop and create a good biblical view of modesty. Five principles. Number one, the human body is a good thing. We start there because a biblical view of modesty acknowledges the goodness of beauty, the goodness of the body, the goodness of the things that God has created. In 1 Corinthians 6, which is our text for this morning, Paul is talking to believers in Corinth. Now, Corinth was a city back in the Roman Empire It was a place not unlike Orlando in many different respects. Corinth was entrenched in the pagan immoral culture of the day. And Paul is talking to them in this chapter about sexual purity. There were a thousand prostitutes in Corinth at the temple of Aphrodite. And some Christians, some professing Christians, saw nothing at all wrong with visiting them. How could that be? How in the world could that be the case in Corinth? Well, one reason was that there was a prevailing philosophy back in that day and in that culture called dualism. Greek dualism was the idea that the spirit or soul and the body were two totally different, disconnected things. Now think about this with me. Dualism said that body is bad, spirit is good. Body is going to pass away, disintegrate, it won't last forever, but spirit or soul will. The soul is what is eternal. The soul is really what matters the most. And this dualism gave birth to another philosophy called hedonism. Hedonism said, okay, since the body doesn't matter, do whatever you want. Since the body is going to just disintegrate and doesn't last, since it's not important, Live any way you please. Go ahead and indulge the body. That's what the hedonists say. And that's why Paul, in verse 12, quotes a popular libertine slogan of the day. He quotes it. That's why it's in your Bible in quotations. Verse 12 says, everything is permissible for me. See, that's what the hedonists said. Everything is permissible for me. And then in verse 13, he quotes another slogan that said, food for the body and the stomach, I mean, food for the stomach and the stomach for food. And that slogan just meant that sex is just an appetite. It's nothing more than a bodily appetite. So go ahead and indulge it any way you wish. And that's how people in the Roman Empire, even many professing Christians, justified their immorality. Started off with dualism, the body is not important, 
That gave rise to hedonism. Go ahead and indulge it anyway because everything is permissible. Food's for the stomach. Stomach's for food. Go ahead and indulge. But Paul says in verse 13, hold on a minute. Wait a minute. The body is not meant for sexual immorality. And that phrase sexual immorality is a Greek word you can understand. It's porneia. Porneia. It's a broad Greek term that included anything, uh, any sexual activity outside of heterosexual marriage. That's what porneia was. And Paul says that the body is not meant for porneia. Why? Why? What's his argument to prove that the body is not for sexual immorality? His argument is that the body is just as important as the soul. Dualism is wrong. The body and the soul are connected. One day, in verse 14, he says, you're going to have a resurrected body, just like Jesus has a resurrected body. And Paul goes on to say, verse 15, your bodies are members of Christ himself. That's how important your body is. Verse 19, your body is a, what? Temple of the Holy Spirit. Verse 20, therefore, Honor God with your body. Do you see how Paul builds his case by saying that the body and the soul are equally important parts of your identity? You are body. You are soul. And yes, the body is going to die. It's going to decay in the grave. But one day, if you are in Christ, it will be resurrected and glorified and reunited with your soul. And you will live forever upon the new earth, both body and soul. The body is a magnificent work of art by our creative designer God. We are, as the Bible says, fearfully and wonderfully made. It's okay to want to look good, you see. It's okay to want to dress nicely and to be fashionable. Our God is beautiful. We sang that earlier this morning. And we were created in His image to reflect His beauty. You should care about your body. There are examples in the Bible of people who were good-looking. Saul, for example, was an impressive young man, it says in verse, 1 Samuel chapter 9, without equal among the Israelites, a head taller than any of the others. David, it is said of David in chapter 16 of 1 Samuel, he was ruddy with a fine appearance and handsome features. Of Esther, it says in the book of Esther that she was lovely in form and features. And the whole book of Song of Songs is a celebration of our sexuality and of our bodies. And so what are we learning first? We're learning that a biblical view of modesty is rooted in the idea that God has created us body and soul in his image. And we are astounding creatures. Yes, sin has spoiled the image of God in us. Yes, yes, sin has distorted the way that we express our sexuality and view our bodies. But Jesus came in a body to redeem not only our soul, but our body. And Christianity celebrates that. It celebrates the human body as a key part of who we are and of our identity throughout eternity. So first of all, the human body is a good thing. Second principle, if we're building this view of biblical modesty, the way we clothe our bodies matters. The way we clothe our bodies matters. Clothing speaks a language all its own. Have you ever thought about that, that clothing is like a language? It says something about what's in the heart. 
Jesus said in Matthew 12, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. It would be accurate to say out of the overflow of the heart, clothing speaks. You could even argue that clothing is a statement that is looking for a response. Clothing communicates what you value. It communicates what you believe in your heart to be beautiful and important. Illustration, I was uh, working on this sermon in McDonald's a couple days ago. It's one of my favorite places to plug in and use their Wi-Fi. And looked up and through the front door came a young woman, 17, 18, 19 years old or so, I guess, wearing pajama bottoms. Now, look, I know this has become common. But I, for one, believe that pajamas belong at home. They are making a statement about what's in the heart, whether intentional or not, it communicates and sends a signal. A signal that asks for a response, maybe an unwelcome response, but a response nonetheless. We looked earlier at First, uh, First Timothy 2. Let me direct you to another passage of Scripture that speaks to this. It's First Peter chapter 3. Now look, I know both of these passages are speaking to women, and I'm going to address that in a short while so women don't get your you know, defenses up here. First Peter 3 says, Wives, your beauty should not come from outward adornment, such as braided hair and the wearing of gold, jewelry, and fine clothes. Instead, it should be that of your inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. For this is the way the holy women of the past who put their hope in God used to make themselves beautiful. Now, what I'd like you to notice for just a moment is basically what God calls beautiful. He calls beautiful your inner self, the gentle and quiet spirit that you have within you. That's the kind of beauty, says God, that lasts. Physical beauty is very temporary. I was looking the other day at my skin. You, you're my age, you, you guys my age, you know what I'm talking about? That's not the way I used to look. <laughs> I was looking at my skin as the way it's changed. You know, beauty, handsomeness, whatever amount of that I had is quickly fading. But the Bible says that the inner self that you are lasts forever. That's what really matters. The beauty of character, the beauty of your integrity, the beauty of your faith is unfading. See, God's value system is totally different from ours in the world, isn't it? Our culture says that you are what you project to be on the outside. But God says you are who you are on the inside. You remember what God said to Samuel, right? Samuel was looking for a king to replace King Saul in 1 Samuel chapter 16. And God says to Samuel, look, Samuel, the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And lest any of you women do get a little defensive about seeing these scriptures that are addressed to you, there are 
plenty of passages addressed to men who trust, perhaps not in their beauty, but in their strength, right? Their athleticism, their macho image. It says in Psalm 147, verse 10, His pleasure is not in the strength of the horse, nor his delight in the legs of a man. I'll try to remember that next time over at LA Fitness looking at those guys. God's delight is not in the legs of a man. The Lord delights in those who fear him and put their hope in his unfailing love. See, that's a male version of 1 Peter 3. Same basic message. So what we're learning then, first of all, the body's a good thing. Secondly, it matters how you dress because it says whether you're emphasizing the things on the inside or the things on the outside. Third principle. The call to modesty is as much a call to men as it is to women. Now, it's true, as I've already said, that these instructions in 1 Timothy 2 and 1 Peter 3 are directed to women. But men, you and I don't get a free pass here. Most of the messages about modesty are addressed to women, but men, we don't get a free pass. The problem of immodesty is as much our problem as it is theirs. Guys, why do you think so many women obsess about their looks? Could it be at least partially because the message we men send them all the time is that they are bodies and nothing more? Why do you think 85 to 90 percent of the people with eating disorders are women? Why is it that 91% of the cosmetic surgeries performed in the U.S. are performed upon women? And why have those cosmetic surgeries increased over 200% in the last 15 years? I'm sure it's partly rooted in the fall of Adam and of Eve and the particular propensities that women have as over against men. But men, we have certainly contributed to it by our failure to love and respect women as co-equal image bearers as partners in the image of God. Guys, I remember in college, I went to a university in the uh, mid-70s. And even in the heyday of feminism, I remember the day I was sitting in the dining hall and a whole group of guys were sitting there as women walked by, unknowing what was going on, And they ranked the women on a 1 to 10 scale. Out loud. Five. Seven. Two. It's tragic. Men, I agree. Women need to know what they do to us when they dress provocatively and seductively. But we need to realize what we do to women when we objectify them and reduce them to an image on a computer screen or in the Sports Illustrated Swimsuit Edition. Men, every time, now listen to this, every time you click on a pornographic site, you are contributing to an industry that uses and abuses women for the gratification of men who are not real men. Neither gender is without guilt in this issue. Men as well as women need to seriously repent. Perhaps you do as well. 
Women sin against men when they dress seductively. And that's true. But men sin against women when we treat them as mere bodies and not as whole persons with intrinsic value. That's why I say this call that the Bible is giving us today applies both to men and women. It's a call to both of us to repent. Principle number four kind of relates. It's sort of an outflow of number three, but here it is. The call to modesty is a call to the church family to be the church. Now, this is sort of uh, an in-house conversation here now. The call to modesty that we're talking about today is a call to us to be the church family that we're supposed to be. Look with me again at verse 12, and then I want to sort of springboard off of that to something else. Verse 12, remember I said, is a libertine slogan that was popular back in Paul's day. Everything is permissible for me. All right, now, interestingly enough, Paul refers to that same slogan a few chapters later. Turn in your Bible to chapter 12, uh, sorry, chapter 10. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 23. Paul refers to that same slogan, but, but with a slightly different context. It says in chapter 10, verse 23, everything is permissible, but not everything is beneficial. And, there, and now he puts it again. Everything is permissible, but not everything is constructive. And now notice verse 24. Nobody should seek his own good, but the good of others. Now see, what Paul is talking about here in chapter 10 is slightly different from what he's talking about in chapter 6. In chapter 10, he's going to be talking about whether you should eat food that has been already sacrificed to an idol or not. And his point in this chapter 10 is, you know, you're free. You're free. You're free from works of the law as a way of gaining justification before God and other people. And so therefore, you basically are free. Your conscience can be clear if you eat food that has already been sacrificed to an idol. But here's the caveat. Not everything you do is beneficial to others. Look at verse 32. A little bit later down on the page, he says, Do not cause anyone to stumble, whether Jews, Greeks, or the church of God. He says, don't cause anyone else to stumble, even as I try to please everybody in every way, for I'm not seeking my own good, but the good of many, so that they may be saved. All right, let's, what, what has Paul just said? He has said that even though you're free to do whatever you want as far as this food sacrifice to idols, what if you're around other people for whom it is a matter of conscience? Don't spoil their conscience. Don't make them stumble. Don't do things yourself that cause others to sin. What has this got to do with modesty? Everything. Everything. If you are a Christian, Paul would say you are free. St. Augustine put it this way, love God and do as you please. See, there's an element of truth there. Christian liberty is a wonderful thing, but you says Paul back here in chapter 6, you are not your own. And you must never forget that. Our text says you are not your own. You can't do what you just want to do with your body because you were, what, bought with a price, the precious blood of Christ. Your body is not yours. It's the Lord's, Paul says in chapter 6. And in a very real sense, 
your body also belongs to the body, the body of Christ, the church. As we talked about last week, you remember if you were here, we are the band of brothers and sisters. We are a family, the family of God. What you do affects them. What they do affects you. So don't use your Christian liberty as an excuse to make your brother or sister sin. Let's be concrete for a moment. Ladies, that means you do have a responsibility to think about how your clothes speak to the guys that are around you. Are you dressing to draw attention to your body for the purpose of arousing or manipulating other people or exalting yourself? If I could be more concrete, and I'm borrowing from someone else who said to ask yourself when you walk out of the house, are your clothes too much, too little, or too tight? It's a good rule to follow. Too much, too little, or too tight? If so, you need to ask yourself the question, is this loving my brothers? Am I loving my brothers? You can't just say it's not your problem if some guy falls because of you. You can minimize the temptation for him. You can be a partner in his sanctification. And men, same way. You and I have a responsibility to guard our eyes and not lust. Verse 18 of our text today says, Flee from sexual immorality. When you're tempted to lust, Rely on the Spirit and flee. Run. You don't have to stare, you know. You don't have to stare. If you do that, is that loving your sisters? Don't you know that that will cause your sister to stumble if you stare or come on to her? You can be a partner in her sanctification. See, modesty actually boils down to a love your neighbor thing. Modesty is a way to love your neighbor, love your brother, love your sister. It's a great opportunity for the church, UPC, to stand for and with each other and be the church in this very practical issue of modesty. Fifth and last principle as we wrap up. It's so important that you hear this one. Modesty flows out of a heart deeply rooted in the gospel. Modesty flows out of a heart deeply rooted, firmly rooted in the gospel. Let's go back to the definition of modesty that I gave earlier today. You remember what I said? I said that modesty means not dressing for show. Modesty means not using your clothing to draw attention to your body for the purpose of arousing or manipulating other people or exalting yourself before other people. Now the question needs to be asked, why do people do that? Why do people dress for show in the first place? Why do people do anything to get other people to notice them? Why do people, for example, boast about what a great car they now have? Why do people walk all, other pe- walk all over other people in an effort to climb the ladder to success? Why do people parade their intellect in front of other people in order to be noticed and admired? Why do people exaggerate the truth so that they'll be thought well of. Why do people act like know-it-alls? I mean, the list is endless. Why do people do the things, the sinful things that they do? It's because every human being instinctively knows that something is wrong. Something is wrong in here. May not say it that way, may not even verbalize that at all, but every human being knows instinctively that something is missing, 
Pascal called it a God-shaped vacuum in the human heart. There's this need for some source of transcendent meaning. There's this need for something bigger than ourselves, something that will validate our existence and tell us that we're okay. The Bible's word for that is righteousness. We all need righteousness like an A on the report card of our lives or a validating performance record, something that fixes what I sense is wrong down here. We all have this need, you see, to be justified. That is, to be told that we're worth something in the grander scheme of things. Or as C.S. Lewis put it in his book, The Weight of Glory, to be on the inside of some door which we've always seen from the outside looking in. So what do we do? (laughs) In order to get in on the inside, we show off our bodies. We boast. We power our way over others in an effort to fill up that hole in our hearts and get that righteousness that we need. But as I hope you have discovered, it won't work. It won't work. There's only one place to get that validating performance record, and that is from the one person in all the universe who actually earned it, Jesus Christ. In verse 11 of our text today, after listing all those sins, and I suspect as Jill read about uh, idolaters, adulterers, male prostitutes, homosexual offenders, etc., I'm sure that some of you had questions about some of those things, and Lord willing, we may get to those later on this summer. But after listing those various sin categories, he says in verse 11, and that's what some of you were. Some of you were those things, but then he says you were washed, you were sanctified, that means made holy, set apart. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. See, When Jesus Christ died on the cross, this amazing exchange took place. He traded places with you. He took your sins and the wrath of God that they deserved upon himself, and he gave you his righteousness. He gave you something far more excellent than external beauty and handsomeness. He gave you that A that you've always longed for, and he brought you inside the door of God's love. There's nothing more you need to do. Your identity is now that of a saint, a justified child of God. As verse 15 says, you've been united to Christ. You are complete in Him. So you know what that means? You can relax. You can relax. You can stop trying to get people to like you. You can stop trying to power over people. Your struggle for significance is over. You don't have to build a record anymore. You don't have to be cool. You don't have to have six-pack abs. You don't have to be skinny. (laughs) You don't have to be handsome. Because to the one person in all the universe who matters, you already are beautiful. You already are beautiful handsome. Your value is not in your looks or your sex appeal. So now you're free. You can just concentrate on loving and serving people. You can be modest. You can glorify God with your body. 
Let's pray. As you bow your head there and think about these things, parents, I'm speaking to you. How can you begin early in life to teach your little boys what masculinity really looks like? How can you teach those little girls the value of female personhood? How can you teach those little girls that they are bodies, but they are more their bodies? How can you provide structure in your home without becoming legalists? And UPC, how can we love the opposite sex enough to partner with each other in our sanctification? How can we avoid the extremes of legalism and license? And then as we relate to our non-Christian friends and make disciples, how can we show them the real way to life through knowing Jesus Christ? Lord, in these big challenges, we pray that you will help us. We pray that you will fill us with your Holy Spirit and give us the ability to resist the pull of a culture that denigrates the body, that cheapens the body, that tells us life can only be found in self-indulgence. Oh, Lord, we give ourselves to you. We pray that we will be gospel-centered people in this area of our life as well as in every other area. And to do that, Lord Jesus, we need you. We need you so badly. Come, Lord Jesus, forgive our sins in the past. Take us from here into the future. Help us to live to glorify you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We at University Presbyterian Church thank you for listening to this message. Our mission is to help people know God, grow together, and serve others. To learn more about the church or how to have a vital relationship with God, visit our website at www.upc-orlando.com or call our offices at 407-484-3300.